How do the best data scientists in the world master their data sets, train their models, and climb the data science ladder? Let's ask them. My name's Jeremy, and this is the Towards Data Science Podcast. You can get access to the very latest research. We also have to make sure that we're constantly revisiting our foundations and justifying why we're using the methods we are. At that time, I said, and I want people to hear this, that you have worth and you have skills and there's someone who needs that somewhere. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of the podcast. My name as always is Jeremy and I'm on the team over at the Sharpest Minds Data Science Mentorship Program. Now, machine learning in grad school and machine learning in industry are very different beasts. In industry, deployment and data collection become key. And the only thing that really matters is whether you can deliver a product that real customers want fast enough to meet internal deadlines. Now in grad school, there's a very different kind of pressure focused on algorithm development and novelty. And it's often not obvious which path you might best be suited for, but that's why it can be so useful to speak with people who've done both. Bonus points if their academic research comes from one of the top universities in the world. And that's why, for today's episode of the Towards Data Science podcast, I'm sitting down with Will Grathwall, a PhD student at the University of Toronto, student researcher at Google AI, and an alum of MIT and OpenAI. Will's obviously seen cutting-edge machine learning in industry and academic settings, and he has some great insights to share about the differences between the two environments, but he's also recently published an article on the fascinating topic of energy models in which he and his co-authors propose a unique way of thinking about generative models that achieve state-of-the-art performance in computer vision tasks. So I'm really excited to get into this. We're going to be talking about the technical side of machine learning through this paper and a couple of other subtopics, as well as this question of the difference between industry and academe and which people are best suited to which areas. So I'm really looking forward to diving into this one. Will, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast. Uh, hi, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really excited for it, actually. Uh, you've done a ton of stuff. You, you're currently working part-time at Google Brain, as one does, and uh, you're also working on your PhD in machine learning at the University of Toronto, and there you're being supervised by Rich Zemmel and David Duvenod. Um, we actually had David on the podcast a couple months ago, so I'm really oh, looking really? forward to this. As a, yeah, yeah. I think this will be a cool opportunity, if nothing else, to dive into maybe a little bit more detail. So, uh, In fact, you recently published a paper mm -hmm. on the archive in connection with some of that work that I'd love to talk to you about because it just looks absolutely fascinating. Um, all that, though, is like barely a quarter of your bio, though. So maybe we can start with a little bit of background to help situate the conversation a bit before we get into your most recent work. How did you get into machine learning in, in the first place? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I got into machine learning uh, after my, my freshman year um, at MIT. I was working in, in a robotics lab, just kind of doing sort of grunt work for a, uh, for a PhD student uh, who worked in like uh, computer vision. And uh, there was this hot item uh, that had just been released, uh, the, the Microsoft Connect. And uh, so we had a couple, all the robotics labs were buying them. And so I had one just because I had an Xbox and I hooked up the API with my computer because that was, we were, we put one on the robot. And uh, so when I got home from my, from my job, I would, you know, play around with it. And I was very, I was really trying to, uh, uh, to build some sort of way to use my hand as a computer mouse. 
And uh, I didn't know anything about computer vision at the time. I, I mean, I just learned how to program six months earlier. So I was very, very much an amateur. And I spent the whole summer basically writing this complicated rules-based system to track my hand around. It was completely over-engineered and just straight up didn't work at all. And then I remember at the end of the summer, I saw like a blog post from Microsoft Research and they had exactly done what I was trying to do. And they released like an API for hand tracking. And uh, again, I had didn't really know anything at this time. I was just a freshman. And I learned that they use something called a, a random forest and they were training these machine learning models. And I, well, I got very upset at first because I wasted my entire summer doing something that apparently I could have, you know, had a machine do for me in a couple minutes. And uh, it was kind of like that, uh, me thinking back about how much time I'd wasted and how easy it was with this with this yeah. machine learning based approach. And that kind of was the first thing that really got me looking into what these methods were. And uh, very quickly that became my primary interest. And I kind of shifted my focus from like algorithms to statistics and machine learning and uh, I've been working kind of in that space ever since. And um, so I finished up my, my undergrad um, at MIT in math and um, I guess uh, I graduated in 2014, which was right around the time when all of this, uh, you know, kind of new wave of deep learning was really starting to heat up. And I was very interested in working in that space, um, but there wasn't, there weren't too many options at the time, uh, especially for somebody who didn't have a PhD. And uh, I also didn't really do much research in my undergrad, so there weren't like too many, and I wasn't doing a PhD at the time. Um, so I was very interested in working on these methods, learning how to use ConfNets and deep neural networks and things like that. Uh, so I guess my and my friend's best ideas were to uh, attempt to raise a little bit of money and start a company where we would uh, uh, build a product that used deep learning in some way. Um, so that's exactly what we did. And uh, uh, we moved out to, uh, to Menlo Park and started a, a very ill-fated uh, startup where we built um, content moderation software um, using deep neural networks. So, you know, we were looking for, uh, you know, we were building detectors for nudity and violence and things like that in an attempt to sell this to like social media platforms who uh, at the time were flagging all of this by hand. Um, and that was, uh, well, in many ways, it was a great success. In many ways, it was a miserable failure. Uh, as a business, miserable failure, but it was a great way for me to learn, you know, to get up to speed with all the, yeah. with with using ConvNets and training deep neural networks, um, especially because at the time, the tooling was so much worse than it is now. Um, I mean, everything was written in C++ and CUDA, and it was a real, real engineering nightmare. Um, and so we worked on that for about a year. And after we decided to call it quits on that, um, I kind of floated around between various uh, uh, startups in the deep learning space. Uh, worked at an augmented reality company for a while. And uh, I worked at a, uh, a startup that built uh, like a sort of uh, AI-driven search engine service where we would index products for e-commerce companies. And uh, so that was a lot of machine learning classifiers in our automatic indexing. Um, and I guess through my time in Silicon Valley and working at these very applied 
machine learning jobs, I started accruing a number of frustrations over the over the over my years uh, with basically kind of coming to terms with the fact that while these methods were very cool and flashy, um, and they could do they could get very impressive results on these sort of academic data sets. The second I tried to apply them to a different data set, like say the uh, nudity prediction data set or uh, classifying fashion objects, uh, they kind of all broke. Really? And um, yeah, well, I think there's this massive issue with generalization. And like we all know, deep learning requires massive amounts of training data. Um, and if you really do have enough of it, you can generalize to new samples from the same distribution. So there's kind of two things. You need a lot of data, and you're only going to perform well on data that looks like the data that you were trained on. On that note, what I find surprising about this is, you know, historically, obviously, we think of computer vision as one of these domains that seems to be particularly amenable to transfer learning. So, you know, obviously, mm -hmm. the you know, Google Net or Inception Net or you know, whatever you want, or nowadays, ResNets or, or, or um, YOLO. And uh, anyway, so what was it about? Like, was there some particular feature of the data sets? Like, were they qualitatively different enough, I guess, that the lower order features at lower levels of abstraction, the lower layers mm -hmm. of the convolutional net just weren't mapping on properly? Was that the issue? Yeah. So the the main issue was when you went, well, there's two issues. One, not having enough labeled training data um, for training or for fine tuning. Um, and then the second one is that when you're deploying these classifiers into a real world setting and you're going to be, you know, using them on like user uploaded content, uh, then it's very hard to predict the full spectrum of, of uh, types of data you'll be getting. So one issue we had uh, at my company doing content moderation was, um, oh, one, you know, we trained on all these natural images, but then we would get animated pictures. And that is a completely different domain. And even if you have, you know, so much training data on natural images, um, that doesn't really tell you anything about how well you're going to perform once you shift the domain to something like cartoons. And right. But then, so then that would motivate you to say, okay, my classifier is failing on cartoons. So now I'm going to collect more training data at a great amount of cost, label that, retrain my models, but then something new is going to happen. And for example, in our case, after we dealt with the animations, um, we realized that our models were breaking on whenever there were pictures of babies. Um, because babies are oftentimes not super clothed and they have you know certain certain shapes that could look like other things. And you're basically playing this cat and mouse game where like you're always needing to collect and label more data. And at um, as a, a small startup with you know very limited resources, um, you know labeling a single image is not very expensive, but labeling, say, 10 to 100,000 images can cost a good deal of money. Um, and then at that point, you know, I kind of started to realize that there was this bigger issue with, uh, like, sort of, you could call it maybe domain shift or domain adaptation, um, but more generally, just like generalization or reliability, because the other big failure of these models is that, um, so one, they'll perform badly on data that looks different than what they were trained on, but also it's very hard to understand or predict when that's going to happen because deep neural nets are very, they tend to be very overly confident. Yeah. And so they'll, you know, they'll 
confidently say that this is a tiger when it is most definitely a donkey. And you can't really predict when they're going to be wrong and when they're wrong they are. And especially when in you know the real world, when you're trying to deploy a classifier, it's oftentimes much more uh, catastrophic to just output right. wrong answers than it would be to say, to, res to re you know respond, I don't know. But um, that is not something that these models are, even to this day, uh, very good at. There's um, a lot of work on making that stuff better. But uh, so I, I, I found myself very frustrated because when I was working at these companies as somebody, you know, one of the few people doing the machine learning, I was also um, in charge of uh, the data collection and data labeling sort of pipelines. I became a real wizard at Mechanical Turk, but um, uh, it's a, yeah, it just didn't seem like a, a, a scalable solution. But then what is the solution? Well, that's a gigantic open research question. And I kind of felt like I was hitting my head against the wall because it's very, it, it's reasonable at a small startup that's cash strapped to like not be able to invest in cutting edge research that could take potentially years, but also we're trying to create something that maybe just the technology doesn't quite work out with our finances. So it was, it kind of caused me to rethink really what the state of machine learning in these tech startups was at the moment. Well, and it's funny because as you lay out your career story, your career arc there, it's it's hard not to see the the close parallel with the history of machine learning. I think for any listeners who aren't familiar with this, you know, you started off by saying I, I forget if it was in 2011 or or 2012 that you encountered that Microsoft um, hand tracking thing. But you know, this mm -hmm. is like around the time right before ImageNet came out, convolutional neural yeah. networks were not used, and that's why they were using random forests. Then you know, the all of a sudden you have this explosion in neural networks. Uh, everybody everybody's trying to solve the um, the sort of business side, the startup side of computer vision, which I guess yeah. is your adventure in Silicon Valley. Um, and then social networks trying to use this for, for content moderation. So it's really cool that you've, you've tracked this. And it seems like you've actually followed that arc one step further because right now you're working on generative models, right? Which is sort of the next generation of trying to, trying to make some of these, these um, classifiers more robust, right? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, so, you know, the, the one thing I noticed when I was dealing with all this data is that, um, and collecting and labeling data is that labeled data is expensive, but unlabeled data is free. You know, right. I can get you a billion images off the internet right now. And, but to a uh, to a convolutional neural network circa 2014 when I was doing this, and a, a billion unlabeled images is basically worthless. Yeah. Um, and so I was very interested in, look, I, I kind of saw the most obvious solution was trying to find out a way to leverage this unlabeled data to improve our classification performance, our generalization, because even if the data is 1% as useful, I can get, you know, a thousand times as much, um, you know, for free. And so, yeah, so one very intuitive way to use unlabeled data is uh, by training a generative model. So instead of a pr uh, classifier, which is known as a discriminative model, so discriminative models, which are most of the models that people think about, um, they map from your input domain, which is say images, to some some piece of data that you'd like to predict, like the class label or a bounding box, something like that. And typically that has a much lower dimensionality, um, but but you need the, that extra supervision of what that target you're trying to predict is. And a generative model 
uh, is basically trying to model the probability distribution that creates the data that you have. Uh, and one interesting thing that you can do with this um, is you can use these to potentially find a sort of a, a lower dimensional or a more simple structure that is hidden or embedded within this complicated high dimensional mess like images. Um, and you can do this by seeing how these potentially hidden you know, uh, factors move around to create the data that, uh, that we see. And once that's been done, uh, once you've learned a little bit about the generating process, uh, if that is a lot smaller and simpler than the data as you observe it, then it's a lot easier to, uh, to predict accurately and reliably um, because in general, uh, I guess from the what we know is what we talk about is the curse of dimensionality. It's a lot easier to uh, to make predictions on low dimensional data than it is on high dimensional data. Just a, a quick thought. I get like in terms of for people who might not be familiar with generative modeling, this is just something I've tended to think of almost as like outsourcing philosophy to computers. So if you imagine <laughs> like what a philosopher is doing when they ask the question, "What is a cat really? Like what mm -hmm. is it that makes a cat a cat?" You know, I can say the word cat, um, you can probably conjure in your image a thousand different images that would qualify as cats, but they all come from the same place. They all come from this, you know, dimensionality reduced form, the essence of catness, which is ultimately, I mm -hmm. guess, what you're trying to model with these generative models, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if you have a lot of unlabeled data, you can start to see, well, you know, there are these... You know, I, I don't know, I don't have the labels to tell me that this is a cat, but I might be able to uncover that, you know, certain groups of pixels usually group together in this arrangement, and that's a high likelihood probability or high likelihood event. Uh, and then once you've, you know, trained your generative model, you have some insight into, um, you know, what complicated arrangements of these of these inputs are likely, then, you know, your labels are much more useful there because then you assign, oh, okay, this high likelihood grouping of things, that's that's a cat now, I know what that is. And right. so it's a lot more useful. So in, in a way, I mean, this is this is like, you know, if you if you had someone who, is, who lived their entire lives inside like a, a confined box where they don't make any contact with the rest of the world, and then you're like, all right, I'm gonna teach you about economics. And then you start to explain, like <laughs> you introduce a new concept and you've gotta explain it from scratch because they've never even seen another human being. So you have to tell them, like, this is another exactly. person, and these people have to interact. And that's a huge task, whereas if you just let this person meander in the world and make contact with different people, even if you never told them, this is a person, that's a person, that's a tree, they kind of learn some mm -hmm. of the ways these things are related to each other so that when you finally say, oh, by the way, you remember that blob that seemed to have a head-like thing and a bunch of arms and legs? That was a person. Then all of a sudden you're like, oh, that aha moment where you're connecting those things, that's sort of like that, that final step, right, where you actually introduce the labels? Yes, exactly. And in principle, this is like a, a really intuitive way to, to tackle this problem of, of learning with less data. Uh, but then once you start to address that issue, things become quite challenging because um, it's a lot easier to predict one bit from an image or a couple bits than it is to generate the whole image, which is basically what you're what you're asking your gen your generative model to do. So like a good example of this are uh, GANs or generative adversarial networks. That is in you know that's an example of this kind of model and. Uh, for them to really learn how to 
do anything interesting, they have to be able to produce, uh, they have to be able to produce compelling and realistic images. I mean, uh, I guess what I mean is that for you to be able to use them to help solve other tasks, they need to be able to really master uh, producing the uh, the data that they're trained on, um, which is somewhat uh, somewhat unfortunate because uh, the state of the art in image recognition or prediction right now is on very large, high resolution images. Right, like we can train very good classifiers on these things once we have enough data, but uh, as it stands, the state of the field in generative modeling uh, is sort of lagging behind that because it just cre it just requires so much more work to uh, to produce uh, a full image than it does to reduce a full image to a uh, to a small uh, a small label. But I guess the theory here is it's it's one of those things where if you know once we understand how to build something that really captures like this this essence of catness or the essence of dogs really can understand images in that deep way that that's going to pay dividends right down the line because at that point it really this model understands something much deeper than what say a, a classifier a naive classifier might be doing or just a discriminative modeler because it, it hasn't been forced to create new things out of whole cloth yeah that's that's exactly true um and that's what a lot of us are who work in this field I and mean, um, are, are are trying to accomplish, um, but there are um, a number of challenges that that have kind of popped up along the way uh, as we try to make these models better and try to apply them uh, to a lot of things. And it's um, it's almost unfortunate because uh, as the field exists currently, um, I feel like most people that work on generative models, like I do, are motivated by their application to downstream problems, like improving generalization or uh, giving us better uncertainty quantification. So helping models say, you know, output I don't know when they truly don't know. But the saddest thing is that, um, so we've made tremendous progress in generative models. I mean, four years ago, we could barely produce, you know, little tiny digits. And now we can produce photorealistic, like, you know, thousand by thousand pixel images, like from that big GAN and various extensions. Um, so it, it may look like we are making a tremendous amount of progress, because we are. But when it comes to applying these things to, um, to make to, you know, to improve downstream discriminative tasks, uh, our, the progress has actually been somewhat, uh, unfortunately, not that not that great. That, that's really interesting. Yeah, because when I look at the progress in GANs, the thing that keeps hitting me is, you know, people share, you know, this person does not exist.com or they share examples yeah. of like, you know, these amazing, as you said, photorealistic images that would have seemed like an impossible computational feat just 10 years ago or even five years ago. Yeah. And so, you know, somebody like me looks at that and says, oh, great, you know, this field must be advancing, but clearly it's not uniform. So what are some of the, the fundamental reasons why this is happening? Why are we seeing, you know, on the one hand, this person does not exist.com and yet on the other, we're apparently not making any progress on this classification application of these these generative models. Yeah, so there's a number of possible explanations for that. Um, and uh, so one potential one, which uh, is one that I focused on in my recent work, is that um, as the generative models have gotten more uh, sophisticated, they've also become a lot more specialized uh, to the task of generating data. And 
what that means is that um, uh, the basically the, the architectures we use to specify these models um, and the models themselves have just diverged considerably from what is typically used in discriminative learning. So when we think about uh, a discriminative classifier, uh, we're usually mapping from a high dimensional output to a low dimensional input. And we don't have any really, any strong restrictions we place on that mapping that is defining um, our model. But when we look at generative models, things change considerably. Um, so there's a class of generative models that's very popular nowadays called normalizing flows. Um, and um, so the interesting thing about them is that they are specified also with neural networks, just like a discriminative classifier would be, but we have to place a lot of restrictions to make the model work. So a big one is that they're defined using a bijective function. So it's an invertible function. So it maps from the data to a, an object that is just as big as the data. And so we have to, and we have to be able to map it back exactly to the original input. It sounds sort of like an autoencoder. Is that, am I off on that? Or? It's similar to an autoencoder, except it's, um, it's lossless. So you're training one function that you can push it forward, but you can also exactly compute it backwards. Okay. So there's no compression in between? None. Okay. And on top of that, you also need to be able to, um, you need to be able to compute something that's known as the log determinant of its Jacobian. And um, we don't need to get into what exactly that is, but it's a, um, that's a hard object to compute. And so you need to restrict the class of functions that you can use to, um, to basically define a function where that specific um, entity or quantity is easy to compute. And so those are just two, those are two very large restrictions that we have to place on our models when we're defining a generative model. Um, and what we find is that, um, well, there's two big changes there. One, the invertibility constraints and the tractable computation of this um, Jacobian, uh, that places, that makes our models a lot less expressive than they normally are. And also, since we have to use a bijective function, that means that we're not allowed to, our model's not allowed to throw away information. And when people were studying why convolutional nets work so well in the first place, that was um, uh, their, their ability to like selectively remove information that was not relevant to the problem was one thing that they originally thought was very useful in their performance. Um, and so just with normalizing flows, we have all these additional constraints. And we have similar uh, constraints when we look at other classes of generative model, uh, like variational autoencoders or GANs. Um, a big one is just that you can think of discriminative models as mapped from high dimensional space to low dimensional space. but most generative models go the other direction because they have to, on the other side, uh, you know, eventually output something that looks like our high dimensional data. Um, so there's just a lot of, like the architectures we use to build classifiers have been heavily tuned to perform very well at that task. And we know in deep learning that the architecture we use has a very big impact on the yeah. performance. And it could be, you know, so big that you could train on one one hundredth of the training data on ImageNet and still get better accuracy if you use the right architecture. And uh, we just aren't allowed to use these state-of-the-art discriminative architectures when specifying our generative models. So it's not that surprising then 
that when we then try to take our pre-trained uh, generative models and use them for discriminative tasks, it's not surprising to me that they don't perform as well as we'd like. And it could just be that like, even if we do get some benefit from learning our generative model, that benefit does not outweigh the right. decrease in performance we get from changing the architecture. Well, and, and this strikes me as, as a kind of fundamental problem in not even just machine learning. I mean, philosophically, it's almost a problem in um, in a kind of meta learning where, you know, like I always think of the, the most fundamental ways to learn things. We sort of have two extremes in terms of the, the spectrum of ways to learn things. At one end, we have physics where humans are doing all of the feature engineering um, they're coming up with all the interesting, like, you know, okay, mass is apparently important or the Higgs field or whatever abstraction, that's the feature that we're going to pump into our equations, which are effectively predictive models. And then mm -hmm. at the other extreme, you've got basically full on, you know, artificial general intelligence that in principle would be able to replicate what these physicists brains are doing. But then there's a bit of a continuum between them where essentially modern machine learning is right now where what we're doing is we're using some of the priors that phys you know, physicists, that human beings know about the world to say, okay, well, you know what? We know images, for example, in the case of convolutional neural networks, we know that they're translationally invariant. So a structure like a convolutional neural network ought to do a better job. But in a way, that's kind of like us hard coding our knowledge of the universe into this algorithm, Absolutely. which, yeah, sort of pigeonholes us, right? I mean, this is, is this part of what the um the challenges here like you, you can't use those priors or import them because of some of the constraints that these generative models sort of impose right um yeah that's a that's a big one exactly and um it's that thinking exactly that kind of got me interested in a at the time much less popular class of models uh, which is something that's known as an energy based model and that is um it's kind of a completely different way to learn to model a data distribution. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it's actually pretty interesting because energy-based models were very heavily studied um, in the 80s up to the 2000s uh, and kind of laid the foundations for like deep neural networks. And most of the architectural like architectures we use and the nonlinearities we use Almost all of that came directly out of uh, work on energy-based models, specifically models um, that are known as restricted Boltzmann machines. Um, and <clears throat> uh, they sort of fell out of favor um, after like supervised deep learning took off and alternative uh, methods like these normalizing flows and GANs uh, came out. But they have, and they fell out of favor for some reasonable reasons that I'll get into. Um, but they have a lot of interesting properties that make them actually quite useful for um, for what I was interested in using generative models for. And you can kind of think of um, energy-based models as representing uh, a distribution or a density kind of on the in the other, like on the other side of how we're currently doing it. So most approaches like a GAN um, or a variational autoencoder or a normalizing flow, um, they model the data by being able to produce the data. And that, I think, I, I, I kind of equate it to like you learning how to understand images by learning how to draw images. Right. Um, but when I think about things in my brain, like I can't, I can't draw, but I can understand 
you know, the quality or the, the how reasonable an image looks kind of in, in this intuitive way. And like, I may not be able to, to paint you a beautiful picture, but I could take two pictures and I could tell you which one looks better than the other one, which one looks more right or real. And, um, and so what that boils down to is sort of a function that takes in an input and outputs some number and just a single number. And that number on its own doesn't really mean anything. But once you take more inputs and take the outputs of that same function, you can start to compare them using this value, which is the relative uh, likelihood or what we call the energy um, of those data points. And, and sorry, so, so when, the, when you're saying you need to do this multiple times, yep. so I just want to make sure I'm, I'm tracking this. So you know, I, I run some image through my model. I, I get a certain a certain number, which maybe we can call the energy output. Um, and then, mm -hmm. but that that energy output is as an absolute number. It doesn't really tell you much. It only tells you something relative to the other energy values you might get from like different images. Is that fair? Exactly. And so, the the neat thing is, so other other types of prob probability models. Uh, they learn what's known as a what's known as a normalized uh, distribution. So they can give you a likelihood value, and that likelihood value tells you how likely this is compared to everything else that you could see. And so that's what we call a normalized distribution, like a softmax, for example. Or... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And an energy-based model kind of throws away that normalization constant, and that produces a number of challenges uh, because you can't sample from them easily uh, and you can't compute likelihood values. Uh, but well, if you wanted to, you would basically need to sum this energy function over every single um, every single thing in the entire space. And you might ask, why why in the world would I give up all of these nice properties of these other models to to have a much less useful uh, model of our of our distribution, and the the reason why you might be interested in that is that you have complete flexibility in how you want to define this function. Uh, unlike other classes of models that or of generative models, this energy function can be anything you want. Ah, uh, so this all of a sudden frees you up to take advantage of of all of these. Um these priors essentially that you have about exactly. the symmetries that problems are out. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so you're free to say, okay, I did all this neural architecture search and I learned about the greatest ResNet architecture for classifying images. Right. And now that's an energy-based model uh, because you say it is one. And the tricky part of this obviously is um, because they're not normalized, they're much more challenging to uh, to train, um, and they're much more challenging to evaluate. But if what you care about is using this for a classification task uh, or, a dis or a regression task or something like that, then it's easy to evaluate because you just look at your accuracy. So if you want to prove to people that this is the greatest model of the distribution of images, that's hard. But if you want to say, well, when I train this thing to model the data and also to classify images, uh, it works really well, or it gives a, an improvement to semi-supervised learning, that you can easily show. And um, that's 
kind of exactly what my last uh, my last uh, publication uh, was about was uh, the paper's called Your Classifier is Secretly an Energy-Based Model and You Should Treat It Like One. Um, we just presented it at iClear uh, virtually. Um, and the, you know, I, I, we didn't really reinvent or invent anything super crazy. It was mainly just a sort of a, a cry out to the community to show like, cause nobody at the time or very few people at the time were, were working on these, these models. Um, there were people working on them and they'd done some phenomenal work over the past decade or so, but it was very kind of niche. Uh, and our, we were just trying to tell people that you can take any architecture you ever want to use for solving a discriminative task. And without changing anything, you just have to, you know, imagine in your mind, and then it's an energy-based model. And essentially, it's a matter of perspective, right? You, you're just adopting a new perspective on the problem that lets you generalize better. Yeah, exactly. You just redefine what the outputs mean. So in a traditional classifier, you have an input, you know, you take in an image, you output, say, 10 real values. And we typically interpret them as logits, which we pass through a softmax. And then that gives us the probability of a label given that image. But we just redefine that each of those outputs is just the energy of the distribution of the data and that label. So we go from modeling a conditional distribution, P of Y given X, to a joint distribution, P of X comma Y. Right. And we show that if you change your training procedure to uh, to take advantage of this or to, to realize this, then you get a number of benefits, um, which is cool. We show that basically compared to other generative models, ours performs just as well as a discriminative classifier. Um, and you get much improved calibration. Uh, so basically your model knows when it's wrong now. Uh, also you're able to detect when inputs are out of distribution. So back to the, you know, the baby's example, we would know, oh, hey, this is not data I was trained on, so maybe don't make a decision. Which those last two kind of sound like they are fundamentally related too, right? Because like the algorithm's ability to know whether a new point actually does look or similar to other points it's seen before, that's got to inform how confident it is in determining whether or not it got the prediction right, right? Uh, yes, they are. They're very much related. Um, I guess when people say calibration, they mean on the training distribution. So like when I'm going to be wrong on images that look like what I was trained on and then out of distribution detection is like, you know, this is a, a 3D rendering, so I probably shouldn't classify it. Right. Okay. Um, and then I guess finally we show that uh, you also get improved robustness to adversarial examples. So the models are harder to attack also. Um, and all of this comes without sacrificing accuracy. And also we show that you can also use these now to generate um, to generate images that are, you know, rivaling the quality of the state of the art methods in GANs. So, but all of that was hidden. Well, let me see then if I can nutshell this uh, correctly, just because I think there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. I want to make sure that I'm tracking it. So, uh, so first off, there's this observation that generative models are great because, well, essentially um, the ability to uh, to, to generate new images or generate new text means that you understand something fundamental about what, you're, what you've been studying, which means in turn, you're probably going to be better at, at predictive accuracy down the line, or at least it opens up that possibility. It also means exactly. 
you're going to be more robust, so you'll be able to sort of anticipate errors and, and not overfit, essentially, as you learn. And, um, and then, but the, the pitfall is that generative models historically haven't been able to take advantage of some of the symmetries that, um, that traditional discriminative models use, like convolutional neural networks or maybe recurrent neural networks or whatever. And, um, and this strategy that you've come up with is basically a way to, just by changing your perspective on what it means to be a generative model or what it means, what, what the input, or I guess what the, this uh, energy function is, um, and how it's related to the outputs, you can actually now accommodate some of these priors, take advantage of all those architectures, and benefit from the robustness that comes with uh, being a generative model. Is, is that sort of accurate? Yeah, that's, yeah, spot on. Uh, head of the nail. Okay, um, good. <laughs> yeah, and um, so, you know, I, I, this was, was very, it was very important work for me because I've been interested in these models for a long time, but, um, you know, the major caveat is that they are very challenging to work with. Um, I'd say, you know, it's kind of like um, generative adversarial networks, like right when they were introduced, they did something cool, but they were really, really hard to work with, really hard to train, very unstable. And, but despite that, they were so cool that everybody got together and found out ways to stabilize them and make them bigger and better. Um, and I feel like right now with energy-based models, we're around where GANs were five, right. six years ago. Um, so like, I think we, my group and, um, you know, some other groups, uh, there's a great group at UCLA that works on this. Uh, they've been showing that there's a bunch of really cool things that you can do with these energy-based models, but they're really hard to work with, very hard to train, very hard to evaluate. So I'm potentially excited because it feels like there's um, some momentum that's being gained and people are coming over from the GAN community or the flow community to start working on these things. Um, so I, I'm hopeful for the next couple of years that more people will be working on this because there's only so much that, you know, I can do and, yeah. you know, a couple other people I know can do. And, you know, research is most definitely a, a, a group effort. So it sounds like fascinating research. And I think there's, there's an un other angle of this too, that is worth exploring, you know, before we, we hopped on and actually during, during the uh, conversation as well, you've mentioned your history as well in Silicon Valley and how you decided to go in this research direction based on your experiences there. But I do want to understand a little bit better what your experience what was like in Silicon Valley and how it compared to what you're doing now in grad school. Could you could you sort of walk us through that decision making process a little bit? I mean, you touched on it a bit, but what made you go into grad school rather than continue in Silicon Valley? And then, um, what are some of the key differences that you found between industry and academia? Yeah, I mean, so you know, as I mentioned, I was I was working on applying, uh, you know, deep learning in whatever settings a a tech startup might need. Um, so at the time, it was a lot of uh, image recognition was kind of a big thing that people were trying to sell. And um, kind of what I realized was that, you know, we had to use the tools available to us to make these things work as best as possible. And uh, so, and that was my job, you know, I may have identified this interesting research area, but my my job was not to learn about how to improve generalization and confnets using unlabeled data. My job was to make sure that this classifier worked as quickly as possible and do it or worked as well as possible and do it as cheaply as possible. And so oftentimes in the real world, kind of 
the dumbest solution is the best solution. And so a very big part of my life became managing data collection infrastructure, uh, like, you know, learning how to game Mechanical Turk, uh, how to get high quality human annotated labels. And that very much, like I, I did this at my company, and then I uh, I did it at a much larger scale at a at the startup at the the next startup I worked at, um, and I kind of had this like that that became managing this infrastructure and this data collection became most of my job and uh, like I I understood how that how everything w shook out that way, but I also I kind of got to the realization like I turned twenty five and I kind of realized that um, you know these are my prime years to get really good at something. And probably the thing I'm going to get good at is the thing that I'm doing every day for eight to however many hours you work at a startup. And I realized that I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be the person that knew a lot about data collection and labeling infrastructure. And that I, I wanted to work on, you know, machine learning, not distilling human and, you know, human knowledge into a, the weights of a convent. And uh, so that, you know, and a couple other life events kind of made me realize that what I was looking for, I probably wasn't going to find in Silicon Valley. Um, because I, I think just at, at many startups, you know, and this is not a fault of them. This is what, what you're trying to do, but you have to build the thing. That's what you're there to do. And I think I've realized that the thing I was trying to build wasn't going to be ready for, you know, wasn't going to be something that we could build that quickly with the resources that we had. And um, so that was kind of, I, I, I kind of realized that like, I, you know, that if I could look around for another tech job, maybe at a fancier, you know, company with a bigger AI lab or something like that. But, um, uh, but I, that I think, I, you know, what I really needed was to be able to sequester myself away for a bit and really think seriously about these things. Um, and so that was challenging also because, you know, in the uh, couple years between uh, going or leaving my undergrad and going to grad school, things had gotten uh, incredibly, incredibly competitive um, applying to PhD programs. And yeah. do um, mind, actually, do you mind if we, if we unpack that a little bit? Because I think there's, there's a, a bit of, um, I've noticed a bit of confusion among um, aspiring data scientists, machine learning developers, mm -hmm. and so on, where like there, there really are two different kinds of grad school when it comes to machine learning. There's the, yeah. you know, the, the, um, what I'll call maybe something like boot camp grad school where you learn basic data science, your pandas, scikit, learn SQL, that sort of thing. And then it's very application oriented. And, you know, that's, I mean, to some extent, I would say that's a really saturated domain. You've got an, like they're just pumping out people. It really is like a boot camp. But yeah. then there's this other mode of grad school, which is the one you're exploring, much more fundamental, much deeper, oriented towards cutting edge research, really making a dent in, in the sort of long-term space of the field. Um, that one, I, I've heard some real horror stories about how competitive it is to get in. So what, what was your experience like on, on that side of things? How did you actually like, yeah, get over that hurdle? Yeah, I mean, well, I'll tell you just full honesty, it was a nightmare. Um, because the the reason why that was such a hard decision for me to make was that I knew I did not have the resume to get into uh, one of these top grad schools. Um, I mean, I you know I, I did my undergrad at MIT, and that that means something, I guess, but not much uh, when 
you're dealing with these very competitive grad programs because what they're looking for is, you know, research experience, uh, publications, um, and I didn't have and recommendations and from people in the in the field, and I didn't have any of that. And so I knew basically I would need to go out and get that somewhere um, before I had any chance of getting into a, 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 a you know a good program. And uh, so what I I made my priority to um, uh, to find you know some 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 situation where I could be spending my full time working on research uh, and there are not that many opp opportunities like that out there, especially for people that don't have the experience already. And um, I was very fortunate. Um, I found a job at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, uh, which is a Department of Energy uh, Research Lab in Livermore, California. And they hired me to do computer vision research there. Because um, I, you know, I, I did have a pretty good background in that, but it, I wasn't doing research for publication. Uh, and while they do a lot of defense type research there, they also publish heavily and they have a machine learning group. Um, and so, you know, I, I considered working at, um, at JPL, um, at the, you know, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in NASA, um, and a couple other places. Uh, but I chose this, I chose to work at Livermore because that was the most clear path to me being able to focus on research try to get publications out the door and to meet and network with people um, in the community. And I, I also very specifically chose Livermore because they have a good connection with UC Berkeley, which is a really strong uh, PhD program in, in machine learning. And I worked there for about two years um, uh, just doing research, getting up to speed, writing papers. Um, and like, you know, I, I had a, um, I will say the, the Department of Energy is actually a very great per place to work. I had a very, very nice time working there. Uh, I learned a whole lot and um, I was able to build up the experience that was able to get me into, uh, you know, what I think is a great, a great grad program. Um, but yeah, because I mean, I, I talked to a lot of people about this, um, but in reality for me, it was like a two year journey of only working on this with the, you know, only goal of using all of this to get into a good grad school. And because like what my advisor Dave says on on his website, um, he has this kind of note that's like basically says if, you know, if you haven't published a, a machine learning paper at a top tier conference, then like you unfortunately probably don't have a very good chance of getting into this grad school. And like he also notes that that's really messed up and kind of completely counterintuitive to the whole idea of grad school. But that's kind of how it is. And like some people, I get very, I get very jealous of my friends who figured it out early and they did, a, you know, a lot of research in undergrad. But if you didn't do that, like I didn't, then it's probably going to take, you know, a significant amount of time and work just to get yourself there. And, um, and, you know, for me, I'm very glad I did that. But uh, for, you know, for it was, that's why it was such a hard decision to make, because I really knew it was going to be not months, but years before I would really get my payoff. And, and so why do you think, because I, I remember um, doing grad school in physics, I, like I did a master's and then I dropped out of my PhD and it just like, you definitely felt that the field had reached a kind of saturation in terms of the, the number of people going in, the number of PhDs being pumped out, the sort of meta or multi-generational 
um, tradition of telling people, you know, this grad school is going to pump out a whole bunch of PhDs. Each of those PhDs is going to become a prof, and each of them will have 10 grad students. And so you create essentially a kind of generational pyramid scheme. Um, mm-hmm. it, like, is that the same effect as this? Because this kind of feels a little bit different to me. It, it seems like there's a, a kind of industry interaction that might be playing a role. Well, I think that's different depending on where um, where you're, you know, what department you're at. But I mean, there is a, you know, a tremendous amount of industry overlapping with academia. Um, I, you know, because so much of this research now is funded by the large tech companies and, um, and, you know, researchers from Google and Facebook and Microsoft, basically, you know, if you pull them together, they're publishing more papers at NARIPS than uh, any university. Um, And so I think, you know, there's, there, so there are way more opportunities you know, outside, once you have your PhD, um, even if you don't want to be a professor. Um, And actually going into it, that's, you know, that was kind of my, uh, my ambition was to, you know, get a get a job at one of these good uh, industry labs. Um, Now things have changed, and I actually kind of like really like research, and I might want to go into academia. Um, But so a lot of people come into their PhDs. And yeah, with the sole intention of going out to get a job at, you know, Google Brain or Microsoft Research. Um, so I think that, uh, I, and I, I guess that's kind of a symptom of the the field just expanding so much uh, over the past couple of years, and it still continues to. I don't really think it feels that crowded. Uh, I mean, it's, there's a lot of people, but um, like the stuff I'm working on right now, there's really not that many people working on it. And I don't think it's like that in physics where there's like a whole lot of people working on every single thing, right? Uh, it's, I think for, for slightly different reasons. I mean, in physics, people tend to do PhDs. Most of the people who do PhDs in physics, and I, I might get some flack for saying this, but I don't think they're doing it out of the same kind of passion as people who do PhDs in machine learning. It tends to be out of inertia and fear of entering the, the job market. Um, I, okay. I, I mean, I happen to know this because this is these are the conversations that I had with my colleagues all the time. Um, so I, I think there's a bit of a difference there, but it's anyway, it's fascinating to, yeah, to hear the perspective on the other side. Yeah. And I think there is the, I mean, maybe something that makes machine learning grad students maybe a little bit more relaxed. It's just that, you know, the, there, there are so many things that you can do besides going down the academic route, um, and which maybe is making us a little bit too, uh, too, uh, too too uh, calm in our in our seats right now because you know things are changing in industry a little bit um, you know it seems like it's getting harder and harder to to get those uh, those industry jobs and um, so the the academic community is I think starting to feel that but uh, but uh, it's not it's not completely changed yet but it is uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess that's a, a, a good final note on the importance of keeping up with the state of the job market almost no matter what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking about going on the job market in a, a year or so, and now, <laughs> given all this, maybe I'll uh, I'll camp out here for a little bit longer. Yeah, may, may, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll get that postdoc or whatever, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, th- thanks so much, Will. I really appreciate it. Um, I think this has just been a great conversation, and, and thanks for sharing your insights both on the technical side yeah, and the broader perspective. Oh, my pleasure. Um, do you have a, a Twitter uh, Twitter yeah, Twitter link, I guess, that you want to share that people can follow you on or, or Medium or anywhere else? Yeah. Um, yeah, my Twitter handle is at W Grothwall. So W-G-R-A-T-H-W-O-H-L. Uh, I, I warn, I do uh, mainly talk about raccoons six days out of the week, but the seventh day I do talk about my research. Hey, who, who doesn't? 
Yeah, well, in Toronto, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, great. Well, we'll make sure to link to that as well in uh, in the the um, podcast. Uh, sorry, the podcast, the blog post that'll accompany the podcast when it comes out. And uh, yeah, really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Will. Thanks so much, Jeremy. This is a lot of fun. 